Uh, well, I'm glad to be here. This is actually my first uh, myth so I don't really know that many people. Um, uh, but my name is uh, Chris Yokel, and I'm uh, an assistant professor of English uh, at Bristol Community College in Massachusetts. Um, so I've been uh, a big fan of, of Tolkien and stuff for a while, but I'm not actually doing Tolkien today. Um, so I'm doing a, 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 I decided to do a Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, um, kind of out of just uh, teaching it in the classroom. So um, at the college I teach at, I basically teach sort of you know introductory English and intro to literature, and I've used uh, Neverwhere a few times as part of the intro to literature class. Um, and so just in, in kind of rereading it and teaching it, um, some of these ideas emerged uh, for this uh, presentation. So that's kind of where, it, where it's come from out of my, out of my teaching experience. Um, anyone here read Neverwhere? Awesome. Nice. Um, so uh, so let's, let's just begin. Uh, so in the beginning of Neverwhere, uh, the narrator describes London as a, quote, a city in which the very old and the awkwardly new jostled each other not uncomfortably. This is actually also quite an apt description uh, of how Neil Gaiman's storytelling works. Uh, so uh, Ewan Wilson uh, writes in uh, his piece, Neil Gaiman, A Postmodern Romantic, that given his propensity for invoking the figures and tropes of classic mythology in his work, uh, Neil Gaiman is often described as a postmodernist writer of fantasy fiction, and not without reason. Most, if not all, of the titles in his over feature characters sourced from myth, uh, folklore, literature, or contemporary culture, either in reimagined forms or simply lifted whole and repurposed. Uh, certainly by drawing on the rich body of myth and culture preceding him, uh, Gaiman can be said to fit the postmodernist profile through his deconstructionist deconstruction of existing works into their component parts and subsequent employment of resultant fragments as evocative symbols. In doing so, he weaves the associations of the source text into his own writing and can thus manipulate them to enrich his own tale. Um, so Wilson goes on in his piece to point out that um, uh, American Gods and uh, Sandman, uh, the Sandman comics, are Gaiman's most obvious examples of this. Um, but for the purposes of this uh, presentation, I want to focus in on uh, Neil Gaiman's first solo novel. And I think sometimes overlooked work in his vast pantheon, which is Neverwhere. Um, so Neverwhere uh, had a little bit of an odd beginning, uh, in that it was a companion novelization uh, to the BBC television series of the same name, which maybe some of you have also seen. Um, it hasn't really aged very well. <laughs> I'm hoping someday maybe there'll be like some update to it. Um, anyway, so. So he wrote the TV show, and he was kind of already planning the novel ahead of time. He actually jokes in the preface that every time they cut something from the show, he's like, well, I'll just add that in later to the maybe retcon and expand it. <laughs> um, so, uh, so the TV series never really took off that much. Um, but the novel allowed Gaiman to expand on the story in a way he could not with the show. And it really launched his career as a novelist. He'd already Obviously, he'd done a lot of comic writing before then, but it really launched his career as a novelist. Um, so since then, Neverwhere has probably been overshadowed somewhat by uh, Gaiman's other fiction like American Gods, 
Stardust, Coraline, Graveyard Book, Ocean Again, Lane. Um, but it seems to have experienced a resurgence in recent years. Um, so you had the star-studded BBC radio adaptation in 2013 uh, with James McAvoy, uh, Natalie Dormer, Benedict Cumberbatch, Christopher Lee. Um, the release of the author's preferred text in 2016, um, where he, he added bits in, where he kind of combined bits of the UK and the US versions together. Um, and then uh, uh, there was a version that he did with Chris Riddell, who's a frequent collaborator, an illustrated version um, that he did with Chris Riddell in 2017. And then, of course, the exciting news that uh, Damon is finally working on a sequel um, that's apparently going to be titled The Seven Sisters. Um, so, so, uh, so Neverworth, I think, has experienced has a kind of a resurgence uh, in recent years. Um, so, um, just in case some of you aren't familiar with Neverwhere, just to kind of give you uh, a little recap. Um, so, uh, the story starts out with this fairly benign character, uh, the kind, likable, but fairly passive Richard Mayhew. Uh, he moves to London, where he works at a great job in business and spends his weekends trailing his domineering fiance Jessica around London's shops. Uh, on the way to dinner one night to meet Jessica's boss, they stumble across a bleeding girl on the sidewalk, which is Dor, and Richard is moved to help her. Uh, so the girl, Dor, is a citizen of the fantastical underworld of London below and is being pursued by two assassins, Mr. Fruit and Mr. Vandermar. Uh, so after making his way into London Below and meeting the interesting Marquis de Calabas, uh, who escorts Dor back to safety in London, uh, Richard attempts to return to normal life until he realizes he's literally disappearing in the normal world of London Below. So he finds his way back into London Below and eventually joins up with Dor, the Marquis, and a host of other fascinating characters as they try to solve a mystery why Krupp and Vandemar killed Dora's family and are trying to kill her. So that's kind of just a quick summary of the novel. Um, and that's my even briefer summary of it. <laughs> um, so what I would like to focus on for the rest of this presentation is kind of the makeup of London below itself. Uh, its characters, its places, its objects, and how Gaiman does a bit of uh, kind of genre border crossing and, and <coughs> border crossing in between classic and modern literature and mythology and kind of jostles all these things together to create this fantastical world in a kaleidoscope-like way. Um, so this is certainly not an exhaustive analysis. I've tried to just pick sort of the major uh, aspects that I've noticed in reading the story. And so the first two I want to talk about are Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz. Um, so as you can see, uh, this is a quote from the, uh, the preface to the author's preferred version where Gaiman says that in writing there where he says, what I wanted to do is write a book that would do for adults with the books I had loved when I was younger, books like Alice in Wonderland or the Narnia books or the Wizard of Oz did for me as a kid. Um, so he mentions these as specific sort of allusions uh, in, in terms of what he wanted to do. And, um, in the story itself, you have this moment where Richard alludes to Alice's famous line about believing six impossible things before breakfast, uh, uh, when it says, quote, it was then that Richard began to laugh. He couldn't help himself. There was hysteria in there, certainly. But there was also the exhaustion of someone who had managed somehow to believe several dozen impossible things in the last 24 hours without ever getting a proper breakfast. 
So, um, so, so Gaiman actually drops that allusion to Alice in Wonderland in the story itself. But then, um, in a lot of ways, the story mimics Alice in Wonderland. So Richard tumbles into a fantasy world and kind of an underworld, um, and he meets uh, many odd characters, much like Alice. And in a way, some of the characters bear passing resemblance to those in, in Alice in Wonderland. For example, um, the Marquis is kind of similar to the Cheshire Cat, you know, this kind of um, mysterious figure. Um, and he's, he's described as having these uh, grinning white teeth, so the Marquis is, which of course the Cheshire Cat is known for its smile. Right? Um, Krupp and Vandermar are kind of a twisted version of Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Um, so they're, they're twinsies, but yet in this odd way. And then uh, you have the Earl of Earl's Court, who's a bit of a bad hatter, right? He's not entirely there, but yet he ends up giving uh, them this important clue. Um, so we see, we actually see, um, you know, we have the actual nod in the book to Alice in Wonderland, but then we see these other larger patterns that resemble Alice in Wonderland that Gaiman uses. Um, and then also the Wizard of Oz, right? So Gaiman mentioned the Wizard of Oz as another tale. Um, and again, we see a subtle allusion to the Wizard of Oz in the story. Um, so it, there's this part of the story where Richard is explaining their quest to this character, Lamia. Um, and he says, uh, well, said Richard, I think we do. The Marquis isn't around anywhere. We know it's going to be a dangerous journey. We have to get the thing I got to the angel. And then he'll tell Dora about her family and he'll tell me how to get home. Lamia looked up at Hunter with delight. He can give you brains, she said cheerfully, and me a heart. So this, of course, is alluding to uh, the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion, needing a brain and a heart in, uh, in the Wizard of Oz. Uh, but again, also we see like these larger story patterns. So like Dorothy, Richard is just trying to get back home. Um, and along the way, he falls in with a group of odd characters. So the, you know, Dor, um, Hunter, and, uh, and the Marquis as they, as they go along. And, they're a group seeking the help of a mysterious, powerful figure who doesn't turn out to be exactly what they seem. So, in Neverwhere, it's the angel Islington. In The Wizard of Oz, of course, it's the wizard. So again, we see these kind of similar uh, story patterns. Um, all right, so now to get more to some of the actual uh, characters. So the Marquis de Caravas. Um, so he, this, uh, the Marquis is the first uh, citizen of London below that Richard meets after he meets Dora. Uh, so after um, being safely ensconced in Richard's apartment, Dora sends Richard to meet the Marquis in order to aid her safe passage back to London below. Um, so we know that the Marquis de Carabas is a moniker that this otherwise unnamed man creates. And actually we get some of this specifically in um, the story that Neil Gaiman publishes in 2014, uh, How the Marquis Got His Coat Back, which some of you may have read. So we get this idea even more that he kind of creates this persona. Uh, but where does this name come from? Uh, interestingly, there is a clue in the way that Gaiman describes the Marquis physically as moving in a cat-like way. Uh, quote, Richard could already tell that he was the type of person who was always in motion and like a great cat, end quote. Um, so, this gives us a clue as to where the name comes from. So the, the name Marquis de Carabas comes from the Italian-French fairy tale of Puss in Boots. 
uh, which is a story about a cat who uses deceptive trickery to obtain power and wealth. Uh, in the tale, Puss is a gift given to the youngest son of a miller. The cat promises to help him and starts by killing a rabbit and presenting it to the king as a gift from his master, the Marquis de Calabas. Uh, so Puss continues to scheme and present his poor master as a rich and powerful Marquis who eventually obtains the hand of the princess and lives a wealthy life. Um, so, so this is where the name comes from. And actually, when you look at the two stories, you see that Gaiman has also pulled some of the characteristics of Puss uh, into the Marquis. Um, so the Marquis de Carabas in Neverwhere possesses qualities quite similar to Puss, as he is both a trickster and an opportunist, uh, obsessed with keeping his own tally of favors and debts balanced in his direction, right? We know that from the story. Uh, for example, he only agrees to help Dora initially because he owes her deceased father a tremendous debt. Um, but then also, even in his dress, uh, he presents himself as aristocratic in dress and bearing, uh, much like the son in the tale, um, who disguises himself as a marquee and pretends to be this aristocrat. Um, so, and then actually, um, I didn't include this in here, but um, I was rereading how the marquee got his coat back like a week ago getting ready for this. Um, and actually, I realized the game even more explicitly confirms the, the Puss in Boots connection in that story, um, which is, is, is not, so I guess that's a, a retcon? I don't know. <laughs> he adds, he expands on um, something that's not in the novel itself. Um, so that's the Marquis de Carabas. Um, another quite interesting character in the story is, of course, Islington. Uh, who ends up being the, the villain. Um, and uh, I was talking about that. Actually, I think we were talking about this last night. Uh, so one of the things that Gaiman does in the story that's so fascinating is um, he uses tube stops, right, as inspiration for real things. So like Earl's Court is a tube stop, and there's really an Earl at Earl's Court. Or like Shepherd's Bush, it's like, don't go to Shepherd's Bush because the shepherds are dangerous. Um, so Islington is actually one of those instances. Uh, so um, so Islington, uh, is a, as a character, is part of Gaiman's playful literalizing of London Two Stop. So Islington is a borough in London, and Angel is an area within this borough. So he puts those together, and he creates this actual character who's an angel named Islington, right? Um, so in the story, um, Dora knows that she must find the angel Islington who will hopefully give her some clue as to who murdered her family. So she looks at her father's journal, and he, the journal in the journal he says, go see Island, which actually, of course, ends up being a setup, but we don't find that out until later. Um, so, so again, I mentioned, you know, he kind of gets the idea, he pulls, creates the idea of Islington out of the actual areas of London, but then he threads those bits together um, with the myth of Atlantis and Milton's Paradise Lost, I think to create a rather interesting character and later villain. Uh, so once Dora and Richard finally meet Islington, who actually is an angel, uh, they learn that he was once the guardian of the mythical island kingdom of Atlantis uh, before it perished beneath the waves, and that now he is the guardian of London. Or at least that's what he tells them. Um, of course, later we find out in the story that he's essentially been... Um, there's this sense that he's, he's somehow sort of was complicit in the destruction of Atlantis, or at least passive, like failed 
in his guardianship. And so basically, God has punished him by imprisoning him in London below with the key to his release that the Blackfriars have. Um, and so he basically sets them up to get the key and bring it back to him so that he can return to heaven um, and get his revenge. Uh, so we end up, of course, uh, uh, learning that it was he who was behind the murder of Dora's family out of revenge for Dora's father not helping him uh, with his plan and that he needed the key, of course, from the Blackfires and Dora's opening ability to open the gate of heaven so that he may return there and seek revenge. Um, so, of course, in this, he echoes the biblical figure Satan. But I think more specifically, Satan Lucifer is portrayed in Paradise Lost. You know, this eloquent, beautiful, fallen being whose pride gets the best of him. Because uh, that's really how we um, meet Islington at the beginning. You know, he's this very beautiful, eloquent... I keep saying he, but actually I should say it. Because Gaiman emphasizes that in the story, that he's act, uh, Islington is actually genderless. Um, so, so I think, in a way, Gaiman is pulling from the Paradise Lost view of Lucifer, which is obviously very classic in Western literature. Um, actually, it's kind of interesting, um, too. Uh, Islington disses Lucifer later in the story uh, when the Marquis de Carabas makes the comparison. He says, Lucifer was an idiot. It wound up being lord and master of nothing at all. And of course, the irony is that Islington himself ends up being duped by Dort. So the, uh, the uh, obliviousness of pride, I guess. Um, and then actually I failed to mention uh, my uh, beautiful uh, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, uh, fan art that I found. <laughs> so Benedict Cumberbatch voiced Islington in the, in, the, uh, in the BBC radio drama version. So I was just amused by that. Um, uh, so the next character I wanted to mention briefly was Hammersmith. Uh, so Hammersmith is not a major character in the story, but he actually does play a key role. Um, and his, I think the connections here are a little interesting. So he's a, he's a blacksmith at the floating market. So the floating market appears uh, several times in the story. Um, so when the group returns to the floating market with the key from the Black Friars, Dora approaches a blacksmith named Hammersmith. Uh, he is described as a giant of a man who literally plucks Dora up and places her on the top of a shelf. He is also a master craftsman who creates beautiful works of art out of metal. I think when they meet him, he's actually crafting a rose, if I remember, like out of metal. Um, we later find out that he makes Dora an exact copy of the key from the Blackfriars, which he uses to trick Islington at the end of the story. Um, so Hammersmith, to me, appears to be drawn straight from the Greek god Hephaestus. Uh, later known by the Romans as Vulcan. Hephaestus uh, is the Greek god of fire and smithery. His symbols are hammer, anvil, and tongs, and he was known for making all the weapons of the Olympian gods. And in a way, the fake key that he makes for Dora <clears throat> ends up being a weapon that she uses against Islington in the end. And that's from uh, uh, Chris Riddell's illustrated version of, uh, of Nicole. All right. Uh, I want to mention one other character briefly before I get to kind of the, to me, what to me is kind of what first got me, you know, onto this whole presentation, kind of seeing this idea, uh, which is kind of the climax of the story with Down Street and the Labyrinth and the Beast of London. But I want to mention one more character, um, which is Lamia, the Velvet. Uh, so while, um, while our 
group is at the floating market, figuring out how they get back to Islington, um, Richard, Dor, and Hunter are approached by the Velvet Lamia, who offers to guide them on their way. And um, the Velvets in Neverwhere are this group of seductive, vampiric women who steal warmth from others, but they don't know this yet. Um, so as they're traveling, she ends up getting flirty with Richard, and in a moment when they are separated from the others, kisses him and begins to suck his warmth and life away until the Marquis shows up and stops her. Uh, Lamia and her deadly kiss are inspired by the mythological being known as the Lamia, first found in Greek mythology as a woman who devours her children, uh, but then evolving into a seductress figure who entices men and then devours them. Uh, this latter tradition actually inspired uh, Keats's poem, Lamia, uh, which some of you may have heard of. Um, one could also say that Gaiman mixes uh, some elements of vampirism uh, into his portrayal of Lamia in the novel. Um, but the name itself actually clearly nods to the Keatsian and the Greek tradition of this like seductive uh, female figure, uh, which he again kind of mixes with the more vampiric elements of like sucking life away. All right, so to me this is just this is kind of the coolest part of the story, um, and this is I first noticed this when I was teaching this to a group of students, and you know being like, oh my god, guys, this is awesome, right? You know, to like community college students, so like, <laughs> some of them appreciate it. Um, so, so as our characters approach uh, the climax of the story, Lamia leads them to Downstreet, and it is described this way, quote, Richard looked out of the open elevator door. They were hanging in the air at the top of something that reminded Richard of a painting he had once seen of the Tower of Babel or rather have had the Tower of Babel in the painting, might have looked toward inside out. It was an enormous and ornate spiral path carved out of rock, which went down and down around a central well. Lights flickered dimly here and there in the walls beside the paths, and far, far below them, tiny fires were burning. It was at the top of the central well, a few thousand feet above solid ground, that the elevator was hanging. It swayed a little, end quote. Now, you're already seeing what I have up here, but if you know anything about classic literature and you hear that passage, bells should be going off. Oh my God, it's Dante. Um, uh, if you think of Dante's Inferno, right, it's described as this circular pit that goes down and down and down and down. And of course, who's at the bottom? Satan, right? Lucifer. Um, so Gaiman here is obviously, you know, winking heavily to people, you know, anyone who is versed in kind of classic literature in Dante, because it matches the physical description of hell uh, in Dante's Inferno, where the poet finds himself, quote, upon the brink of an abyss, the melancholy valley containing thunderings, unending wailings, end quote. And that's from Alan Mandelbaum's translation of uh, the Divine Comedy. Um, and then, of course, what happens? Because as Dante traverses hell with Virgil, he descends further and further down in the spiraling pit, um, and it's appropriate that in Gaiman's story, at the bottom of Down Street is the fallen angel Islington, just as in the Inferno, Satan is in the lowest circle of hell. It just, it all fits, right? Um, and just kind of a reference, I included a picture here, kind of an imagining, an imagining of the Tower of Babel, and then a classic picture of the, uh, a picturing of Dante's Inferno. Right? So you can see, as Richard says, it's like the Tower of Babel flipped on its head. Um, but then, here's where it, like, it gets even cooler. 
um, because Richard Hunter and Dormus travel down into this circular pit, at the bottom of which is a labyrinth with the Beast of London inside. War bell should be going off, right? It's Theseus and the Minotaur, right, from Greek mythology. Um, so this is an obvious reference to the Greek story of Theseus and the Minotaur in the labyrinth. Um, and like uh, Theseus, Richard attains heroic status within London Below. He becomes the warrior of London Below after slaying the beast when it kills Hunter, just like Theseus becomes this hero after he slays the Minotaur, right? Um, it's, um, it's actually also interesting that uh, Gaiman describes the labyrinth as being made up of pieces of London above that have fallen into London below. And I'll just read this quote. Uh, the labyrinth itself was a place of pure madness. It was built of lost fragments of London above, alleys and roads and corridors and sewers that had fallen through the cracks over the millennia and entered the world of the lost and the forgotten. Two men and the girl walked over cobbles and through mud and through dung of various kinds and over rotting wooden boards. They walked through daylight and night, through gaslit streets and sodium-lit streets and streets lit with burning rushes and lakes. It was an ever-changing place. In a way, the labyrinth serves as an internal metaphor for Gaiman's creation of London below itself and companion metaphor to the kaleidoscope. We walk around it and can point out recognizable bits that he's borrowed from other stories. So in a way, the the labyrinth itself is kind of a larger metaphor. And I'm running low on time, so I'll just quickly mention a few others that I kind of noticed. Um, so, so one other thing I noticed is, so Hunter in the story has to obtain this spear, this special spear to kill the Beast of London. Um, to me, that reminded me of the Lance of Longinus, the, you know, the mythical lance that pierced the side of Christ, also known as the Holy Lance, and the Spear of Destiny. Um, so this idea, and of, and of course, you know, just the trope that you find in much fantasy literature, like this mythical weapon, right? You need to defeat some kind of creature. Um, and then he also alludes to, um, I'll just point this out, he also alludes to um, like prehistoric British history at one point. So when, uh, when Richard sees the, the gate to the labyrinth, he's reminded of these stories of King Bran and Gogmagog. So King Bran is a figure of Welsh mythology was a high king of Britain, and his severed head was said to be buried at the site of the Tower of London. Um, interestingly, in later Arthurian mythology, Arthur digs the head up, um, because the idea is that as long as Bran's head is there, he will safeguard England, and Arthur digs it up as like, no, I'm going to safeguard England. Um, and then there's various legends in terms of Gog and uh, Gog Magog, uh, either one giant Gog Magog or Gog and Magog, as these uh, mythic giants. Um, that are, uh, that are part of Britain. So he's just, a, he's just remembering these ideas. Um, so just to kind of wrap it up, um, so I've, uh, I've pointed out several internal metaphors that describe Gaiman's storytelling approach. The jostling of the new and old architecture in a city like London, and the construction of the labyrinth in London below. And I've mainly used the image of a kaleidoscope to illustrate Gaiman's postmodern approach to creating London below. Uh, so Patrick Slattery writes, postmodernism is like the kaleidoscope, unlike telescopic attempts to condense and microscopic attempts to enlarge, postmodernism celebrates the diverse and complex understandings within each unique context. Um, so rather than focusing on the deconstructive aspects of postmodernism, 
uh, the deconstructing of, say, a stained glass window, so to speak. I've, my goal here has just been to illuminate, rather, how Gaiman takes those deconstructed pieces of stories and repurposes them to create new, uh, wondrous, shifting images uh, in his fantastical world. And in doing so, uh, Gaiman honors the stories of the past while giving them new life. And like walking through London or the labyrinth, we as readers are led to marvel at fresh and interesting contexts and combinations. And that is it. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, I'll be right soon. Oh, are we not? Do you have any questions about it? Um, just a couple. Sure. Okay. Uh, I, I find it interesting that you're concluding talking about how Gaiman's postmodernism is affirming. Seems like every, every scholar and their mother has a different definition of postmodernism, but uh, the, the uh, components I'm familiar with are hybridity, which you talk about mm -hmm. different sources, um, and then a tendency towards deconstruction yeah, and yeah. an ironic tone. And yeah, I'm wondering yeah. if you could talk about those last two criteria and where they fit in at all. Well, like I said, I mean, obviously you need to. Um, I guess what I was thinking of is more of like the, um, the I, I feel like there are positive aspects of postmodernism. So you think of like the collage idea of postmodernism of now we, we take all these, but obviously the deconstruction has to happen first. Um, and I almost kind of wonder if like, maybe we've reached a point in postmodernism where we're beyond the like deconstructing and we're more just like, let's play, like let's just mash up stuff. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's what I was kind of, like I said at the end, like obviously the deconstruction has to happen. Um, but I don't see, unless it comes up in maybe some of his other stories, I don't see Gaiman being like a, uh, like a cynical deconstructionist kind of. I, I see him as more just like, like having fun with like, ooh, let's, what combinations can we make? Which, I mean, in some ways isn't unique to postmodernism, but it is a part of, you know, the postmodern kind of landscape. It goes against the conservative critique of postmodernism as nihilistic, so I yeah, think yeah. Yeah, and then I'll, I guess I'll just take them. Yeah. That's going to be a, well, yeah. okay, we're, we're already over time, but that's going to be an interesting discussion. There was, a, there was a really nice play adaptation of it that came to, yeah. to the DC area in the round. Okay. It was really good. You're sitting in the, the actors just uh, wandered around. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, you know, Interesting. The uh, in the original TV show, Peter Capaldi played the angel Islington. Yeah. So pronounced Islington. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was one of his uh, earlier roles. Yeah. I think I was going to mention that, but I forgot. Yeah. Doctor Who shows up. 